0: From the Financial Times in London, I'm Polita Clark and this is FT News. David Miliband, former UK Foreign Secretary, quit Britain in 2013 and moved to New York to run the International Rescue Committee, a global humanitarian organisation that helps people driven from their homes by conflict or disaster. Before that, he was a career politician who rose through the ranks of Britain's Labour Party from his early days as a policy advisor to schools minister, environment secretary and foreign secretary in the aftermath of the invasion of Iraq although he backed the war at the time he now sees it as the labor government's biggest mistake he's now written a book called rescue about the global refugee crisis what caused it and how to tackle it and he's here to discuss his ideas with me now welcome to the ft studio to be david with you, yeah. Now, you explain in your book that your move from politics to the International Rescue Committee was linked to your own family's background. I wonder if you could explain that connection.
1: When I went for my job interview at the International Rescue Committee in January, February 2013, I said that the issues really engaged me, how you deliver humanitarian aid in Syria, how you tackle sexual violence in Congo. I also said that I thought that the IRC was a bit of a sleeping giant, that it had the opportunity to become a real leader of the humanitarian sector. But I also made the point that in a small way, by taking up the leadership of the organisation, I'd be closing a circle in my own family history, as you suggest. My dad was a refugee from Belgium to the UK in 1940. My mum survived the war in Poland and came to the UK as a refugee in 1946. So although global politics is different today, thank goodness, in various ways, And although the religion of many refugees is different from that of my Jewish forefathers and foremothers, I did feel that there was a personal link that, interestingly enough, maybe this is a, I don't know if it's a particularly American thing, but people like to know of the personal link that a leader of an organization has to the issue. And it's certainly been something that has been in the back of my mind as I go about the work that I'm doing.
0: Your book is in some ways an argument that the current international system for dealing with refugees is no longer fit for purpose. Now, why is that?
1: I think that there are two or three assumptions, really, underpinning the system. And it's not the assumption that you usually think of. The definition of a refugee, I think, is not bad. It's someone who has a well-founded fear of persecution, or put another way, in the legal judgments about whether or not someone's a refugee, the key issue is, is it safe for them to go home, which is quite an adaptable and appropriate test. What I think is wrong is the following. First of all, there's a fiction underpinning the current system that displacement is short-term. In fact, we know that most refugees are displaced for a long time, 10 years on average, and once someone's been a refugee for five years, the average displacement goes up to 21 a second outdated assumption is that refugees are stored, housed in camps before they go home. In fact, 60% of refugees are in urban areas, not in camp settings. Third misguided assumption is that refugees are protected by international law. In fact, increasing numbers of refugees are under the, living under the control of armed opposition groups. And so I think that we need to update the policy response, although I don't recommend a change in legal circumstances and status.
0: You talk about some ideas for updating that policy response. For example, you like the idea of refugees being given cash directly. Now, why is that?
1: Very simple reason. that Because refugees are in an urban area, in 60% of cases, because they're part of the market economy, what's the thing they're most lacking? Well, it's the ability to participate in the market economy. And so the twin changes that I argue for are, one that instead of thinking about tents and food, we should be thinking about cash so that people can pay rent, help get their kids into school, etc. I think that would be a major change. It's empowering for refugees. And interestingly enough, when we did a study in Lebanon in 2014, if you give $100 to a refugee, $213 circulates in the local economy. So one of the big obvious dangers of the urban refugee situation, which is that there's tension between host community and refugees, you can do something to break that down because there's a benefit to the local community from having the kind of economic support that a cash system brings. I think the twin to that, though, is that you don't want to just organise a life on welfare handouts. The best outcome is for refugees to be able to work, or at least the adult refugees to be able to work. And that's obviously very testing. I mean, in countries like Jordan, Youth unemployment among the host population is 30 or 40%. In Kenya, outside the Dadaab refugee camp, mortality levels are higher among the Kenyan population than among the refugees who arrive. So one's got to be careful. And I think we need to think about a big macroeconomic bargain for the countries that are hosting refugees. Remember, the top 10 refugee-hosting countries account for only 2.5% of global income. They're poor and lower-middle-income countries. And they then have the responsibility, some would say the burden, of... Delivering on the global public good of hosting refugees, simply lecturing them and saying, let them work, doesn't do justice to the responsibilities that they have to their own populations. And I think that it's exciting that the World Bank are thinking in radical and different ways about how they help middle-income countries that are nonetheless delivering this global public good of hosting refugee communities. And I think that the opportunity there for a win-win is actually quite serious.
0: So you're really talking about some form of Marshall Plan, in a way, to
1: deal with the refugee crisis. it's interesting you use that phrase. I mean, the former German finance minister, Wolfgang Schäuble, talked about a Marshall Plan for the Middle East. What I always say to people is, remember, the Marshall Plan wasn't just an aid plan. The Marshall Plan was a political plan for the political renewal of Western Europe. It was, yes, a plan for delivery of public aid, but it was also a private sector plan. It was a public-private partnership, and it wasn't a quick fix. The Marshall Plan fought over 5, 10, 15, 20 uh, basis. Now, if by a Marshall Plan for refugee-hosting states in the Middle East or in Africa, you're thinking long-term, public-private, political settlement, yes, count me in, because I think that's the right kind of level of ambition that we need to think about. I think that the Marshall Plan was 5 or 6% of US GDP in terms of its scope or scale in the late 40s. Now, the exciting or interesting thing today is, the US doesn't have to do it alone. There's been a spread of global wealth, which you've discussed many times on this podcast and in the pages of the FT, that I think gives us an opportunity to organise a different sharing of the financial responsibility. But I do think we need to think on that scale.
0: But I mean, how realistic is the idea of allowing refugees to work? I mean, can you imagine even in this country, in the UK, that being a popular policy?
1: Refugees are allowed to work once they're granted refugee status in the UK. But what people say is, when you're seeking asylum, then there's a period. And I think that as long as the asylum processing systems take months and not years, you can steer that middle way, if you like. So I think that the way I put it is we've got to organise an offer to the refugee-hosting states that makes it worth their while allowing refugees to work. Of course, countries which ban refugees from working doesn't mean they don't work. They just work in the informal economy. So one's got to have a sense of realism about this. But I think if you think about a country like Jordan... Its debt-to-GDP ratio has gone more or less from 50% to 90% since the arrival of the Syrian refugees. It's pegged to the dollar, so its debt servicing payments, I think, are 10 or 12% of government spending. And it's on short-term drip feed from its aid donors. Actually, the Saudi Arabians have cut off aid to Jordan over the last two years. It's got a three-year IMF program. It needs to think in a different way. It's got 650,000 registered refugees in the country, a population of 7 million someone's got to be able to sit down with the Jordanians and say, we've got to think about this over a 10-year period. And credit to the Jordanians, they've issued 70,000, 75,000 work permits to Syrian refugees. They have a special deal with the European Union on rules of origin, so that if a Jordanian company hires 15% refugees, they get access to the European market on preferential terms. But that takes organisation and it takes support.
0: Given the current administration in the US, how likely is it that Washington could or would ever be interested in playing a role in this? very unlikely at the moment. I mean, Mm. the
1: Trump administration is slashing the number of refugees who are allowed to enter the US for resettlement. There's always been about 90,000 refugees a year have been resettled in the US. They're the most vulnerable refugees as identified by the UN. They're then screened for security reasons by the US administration. And I'm afraid the Trump administration, in a misguided attempt to allegedly improve the security system, is essentially cutting to a trickle the number of the most vulnerable widows, victims of torture, et cetera, who are allowed to come. Also, as you know, the administration wants to slash by 30 percent not just the number of diplomats but the development aid. So America is stepping back. Having said that, I think there's a real opportunity and a responsibility for Europe to step forward because the European Parliament recently voted that the European Union should take 20% of the most vulnerable refugees in the world. The UN identifies about a million of those, so the European Union is saying it should take 20% of them. And I think there's also a wider point from the European experience. Look, the choice in Europe is either there is an unregulated, undocumented, chaotic, illegal flow of people into Europe, or there is a managed, organised, legal flow of people In and out of Europe. And I think that the telling point for the European Union is not whether or not there's going to be migratory pressure. It's about how that is managed. Cyprus, parts of the European Union, are practically in the Middle East. And so I think that Europe's in a good position to exercise a sound head as well as a big heart in thinking about how it handles this issue, which isn't going away, however many walls it builds.
0: You also call for the creation of clear and measurable targets for the outcomes from aid delivery for various affected populations. Who would carry this out? And is there actually any concrete plan to well, create say a like this? I'm
1: glad you picked that up, because for people who are outside the aid world, they maybe don't think about this. One of the most striking things for me coming into an NGO four years ago was that across the donor landscape, of government donors, there's fragmentation. And across the delivery agencies, the NGO, there's fragmentation too. And I don't think that fragmentation is going to be overcome by a reorganization. The downsides of that fragmentation, I mean, the upside is innovation. The downside is dilution of effort. I think we could overcome that dilution of effort by agreeing what I call floor targets, what the UN calls collective outcomes for all the different players working with a particular population. So for the sake of argument, Burundian refugees in Tanzania, there are 250,000 of them uh, who've crossed the border as a result of the civil war. You could equally say Syrian refugees in Lebanon or Jordan. Let's say that for education, health, protection of women and kids from violence and for income or employment, let's agree a set of targets that all the different donors, UN agencies, NGOs are driving towards. So they would be UN agreed targets, they'd be agreed with the host country, and they would provide the kind of lodestar that allows the disparate set of efforts to become greater than the sum of the parts. Because the danger at the moment is that the different efforts even of different UN agencies, never mind different donors and different NGOs, the danger is that the whole is less than the sum of the parts. And when I tell you that we as a $750 million now aid agency, we're running 500 different government grants at any one time, and I tell you that the average length of a grant is 11 months, you can see that we're tackling long-term problems with short-term palliatives, and we're doing it alongside a whole load of other agencies who are funded in different ways, etc., and so we need greater cohesion in the system. And I think that the drive to say this particular vulnerable displaced populations need their own targets that drive activity to help them could help drive greater productivity in the system.
0: Obviously, you've discussed these ideas with policymakers, others in the aid community. What's been the reaction? Well, so far? One
1: reason I'm writing the book is that we need to do a better job of getting unity around this agenda. I've thought four years ago, look, we diagnosed four big problems in the aid business. One was the absence of outcomes. Second, the absence of agreed evidence on what works. Third was an obsession with cost efficiency at the expense of cost effectiveness. It's fine to say that 90% of your money goes to the front line, but what really counts is what you get for it. And fourth, an absence of organized R&D, research and development. We're putting that right in my own organization, but I would say that one of the things that I have not succeeded on in the last four years is bringing that sense of greater cohesion. The donor community is very fragmented, even though it's mainly Western donors. It's still a fragmented business where the Department for International Development, which is an excellent development agency, it's got different targets and metrics and systems than USAID, which is also an excellent aid donor. And the grant cycles are different, the schemes are different, and the efforts of the UN, far from being overweening and too strong, have been too weak actually. I mean, the US has just pulled out of a migration compact. The problem with the migration compact was not that it forced US immigration policy in any way. It was a voluntary coordinating mechanism. And it's part of my general reflection in the book that the refugee issue is a bellwether for the fate of the global system. And the truth about the global system, in my view, is not that it is overweening and strong, but that it's too weak. The problem with the EU in energy policy or migration policy is not that it's too strong and snuffing out national identity, it's too weak. The problem with the UN on peacekeeping and other issues is not that it's too strong, it's too weak. And the refugee issue brings this out very strongly, but it's obviously not confined to that because globalization is too unequal and too unstable because it's not properly managed at a global level.
0: What about the role of business? We've seen some very eye-catching offers by companies such as Starbucks in terms of hiring refugees. But some critics are saying that really business could be doing a lot more. What's your view?
1: Well, I think that's a great point. I always say to people, think about corporate social results, not just corporate social responsibility, corporate social results. And there are some stellar examples of businesses doing things. There's a great piece in, uh, I wouldn't call them a rival newspaper of yours, but a different paper that I tweeted out, which is of the Bundesliga football clubs in Germany mobilising to integrate young Syrian refugees into the local community. Starbucks, you are right to mention, Airbnb also giving support for refugees and for aid agencies. I think that business can step up, first of all, by doing its day job, which is hiring people and giving refugees the chance to get into the job market. The partners that we have in the U.S. say you'll not find more productive and patriotic citizens than refugees because, my God, they know the value of the freedoms they've been given. But
0: but on the other hand, Starbucks faced quite a backlash.
1: There's no point in denying that there are some people who are afraid of refugees. Equally, though, my experience is that for every person who says I'm afraid of the refugee who's moving in next door, there's someone else who'll say, well, hang on, I've got refugee heritage in my family. I know a worker, someone who's a refugee, someone came to visit my church or my synagogue, and they told me about their experience. And I think that the key point that is often missed, and interestingly, we haven't really talked about it much today, these are innocent victims of other people's abuse of power. And one important point for me is that it's not that refugees are good and immigrants are bad, but they're different. And the rights of refugees are different because they are victims of someone else's abuse of power. They're forced to leave their own homes. They're not choosing to do so. And the responsibilities of states towards them are different. So you're right to say that in some areas there's a backlash. But I always push back and say, look, there's polarisation, not just a one-way traffic against this. And I think that when the immigration issue and the refugee issue get confused, you end up in a very difficult situation. I think that's what's happened in the U.S., where candidate Trump was able to describe Syrian refugees as a quote-unquote Trojan horse because people were already dissatisfied with the under-management or mismanagement of the issue of the 11 million undocumented immigrants. Yeah. Sorry, you were asking me, though, about business. So I was saying, one, do the day job of hiring people. Two, second the skills of your people to, so that aid agencies can do things that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do. We've designed with the tech world a special website, refugeeinfo.org, that allows refugees arriving in Greece to figure out where they are and how to access services. We're now expanding it into Niger. 800,000 refugees use the service arriving in Greece. So there's pro bono skills that can be used that can help drive up the corporate social results as well as the achievements of the NGOs. And the third thing, obviously, is that... Business is a financial supporter of the charitable world. I now live in New York, so I've lost the natural British difficulty of talking about money. I've overcome by spending four years in New York. So the donations that businesses make... Actually, three years ago, the International Rescue Committee was the FT's Christmas Appeal Mm. charity. That's a great initiative, and that kind of thing does make a difference because although we're 80% funded, we're now 20% funded by private individuals and corporates and foundations.
0: Just finally, you told one interviewer recently that you have much, much greater power to promote ideas when in government. And I I wonder if this means you would ever consider returning to politics if a suitable opportunity arose. Well,
1: what I said was that there's no question you have more power as a government minister than you do as an NGO leader. Equally, I always say the greater power in government is matched by bigger obstacles to exercising it. So in an NGO, you've got less power but fewer obstacles to Exercising it, I suppose it's the definition of entrepreneurship, really. It's easier to be a, an entrepreneur in the NGO sector than it is in politics, I guess. I feel very privileged to have been leading the IRC for the last four years or so. I probably shouldn't admit this, but I don't know what I'm going to do next, but I'm focused on what I'm doing now. And... That's really as far as I can say it. I always make the judgment, obviously, what comes first is my family and how I can support them. But from my professional point of view, I always try and think, well, how can I make the biggest difference for the things that really matter to me? Where can I make an impact? And that's the test that I will apply professionally to whatever comes next. So you wouldn't rule it out? I never get into the ruling in, ruling out, because I always say to people, what's the point? Why bother to start ruling things and ruling that? Life is an extraordinary journey. You never quite know what's coming next. I I never anticipated that I'd spend four years living in the US, being the CEO of a 27,000-person organisation in 196 field sites around the world. And I feel like I'm learning and developing, and that's always the most important thing. One of my reflections is that if you're not learning anything, you're not being challenged. If you're not being challenged, you're not going to have your mojo. And it's the challenge and the learning that makes life worth living. David Miliband, thank you very much. Thank you very much.
0: Just a reminder that David Miliband's book Rescue, Refugees and the Political Crisis of Our Time, was published last month and it's available from TED Books.